Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Treghauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. For some immigrants, acquiring citizenship in a new country is the final goal in a long journey of various resident statuses and times of uncertainty. But getting citizenship is not always the end of the story. From alienation through documentation to having citizenship taken away, there can be other twists and turns even then. For immigrants with, for example, refugee status, similar difficulties can occur. Marta B. von Erdahl has researched citizenship, permits, and immigration status in Norway, and today discusses some of this research and her findings. Marta is a research director and research professor at PRIO. She's a human geographer and works on projects addressing topics such as diverse societies, citizenship, nationhood, national ties, and migration. Welcome back to the podcast, Marta. And we're in the same room, finally, which is so exciting. We've recorded online a couple of times, but it's nice to have you in front of me in real life. It's really nice to be here and very nice to be in the same room. So today we're, we're going to talk about belonging, um, citizenship, uh, visas, all of these kind of bureaucratic processes. And I think this is very interesting because we've previously discussed more on the podcast, you and I, but also with other researchers about migration and the process of maybe going somewhere in various contexts. But what happens when a person actually arrives to a new country and then what happens in the next decades afterward is something we haven't really um, discussed as much in the research on that. Um, So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I wanted to start with this question of citizenship, it's often seen as something permanent. Uh, a lot of people, you know, if, if they've grown up with one citizenship, they don't really think about what that really even means and what it can imply for someone who maybe gets a new citizenship, um, renounces an old citizenship, has multiple citizenships. And the permanence of that is not actually something we can take for granted. Um, not everyone, at least. So I thought I would just start with, uh, how do people perceive citizenship in Norway, uh, at least what you've seen in your research? Thanks, Indigo. I think you know, your introductory comments are very sort of to the point here, uh, because I do think the main thing we know about citizenship and people's perceptions is indeed that if you're born with one citizenship and you sort of hang on to that as you go through life, really you don't think about it that much. So in, in one research project, when we were asking people about this, uh, the typical response might be that, you know, you think about it when you're traveling because then you need to make sure you have a passport that's valid. And then you get reminded of the fact that in the Norwegian case, you have this Norwegian passport that's red and everyone knows what it looks like. And it kind of becomes a sort of tangible object that uh, sort of documents and confirms your citizenship status. But that otherwise, you know, maybe when you go voting, that makes a difference. So people have this sort of kind of intangible idea of, of what citizenship means to them, but as long as you have a secure citizenship status and maybe have not changed it yourself, then it becomes a sort of uh, implicit part of the backdrop of your life. And I think it's interesting because it's one of these things where when it's not uh, secure, when you have to change it, it becomes quite existential uh, and the security aspect of it uh, becomes really important and more so the insecurity perhaps. And so it's one of these things where, you know, as long as you're in the water, you don't really notice it. And then when you're out, you you really notice that it's a big difference. And I think it's interesting because, of course, citizenship is uh, it's such a multifaceted old concept as well. 
But I think in terms of the discussion we're having today, it's interesting to point out that while you know we think of citizens as kind of something to do with how one thought of, of political organization maybe in the Roman Empire and the citizen and these kinds of things, uh, which is was which is true as well. Uh, the sort of formalization of the document of the passport is actually quite new. Uh, and so I think that's interesting to bring in here because while the relationship between the states and authorities and you know the, the inhabitants of a territory and, and they might have been in different relationships with, with the king or, or whoever was in power, that's not new. That's kind of just a human society thing. Mm. But how you regulate that with kind of formal documents uh, and in a way counting and, and people having to have these documents that has been um, present at different points in time where people had to have specific papers maybe from the ruler to be able to leave or come in into a territory, into a city. But the passport document itself is, is more new and this kind of formalization of uh, re regulations around entry and um, rights within the nation state is something which is, is new and it's, it's sort of an artifact of the nation state in the modern era. Uh, and it's, of course, changing entirely with, with the digital revolution that we're seeing also now, which means that it's uh, opening up many new questions that we didn't have before in terms of what does it actually mean to be a citizen and what does it mean from the state's perspective to, to have citizens. I think in Norway, this is particularly interesting because, well, at least I've, I've followed this a lot in the last few years because there was this big debate about whether people should be able to have dual citizenship. Previously, that was allowed, and so some people had it and had held on to it, but there was a period of time, I think it was maybe 15 years, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, when people had to renounce their previous citizenship if they were going to get Norwegian citizenship, and you actually had to go and, and get a document from your embassy or wherever that said, I'm no longer a citizen of Well, actually, the, the situation was that it wasn't, it wasn't allowed, uh, but there were a number of loopholes. So okay. you're right, that there was a, basically there was a loophole specifically for children who were born with multiple citizenships. Mm. So you didn't break any law by hanging on to having multiple citizenships. However, if you were going to naturalize, that was never on, that was never an option actually. Okay. Uh, and then it was sort of gradually became clear that this loophole was not intended. Right. <laughs> uh, and it varied a lot how it was practiced. And then on top of that, what happened in recent years was that a number of countries. Um, either don't allow you to renounce citizenship. And Iran is, a, is an example of that. So if you're an Iranian, that's for life, whether you want to or not. Uh, but also it became a concern that um, it might be a sort of disproportionate thing to ask of some people to renounce their citizenship if the rules in their country uh, of original citizenship were such that they, for instance, couldn't have inheritance from their parents if they passed away, mm. if they were not citizens. So for instance, if you can't own land, in a particular country, if you're not a citizen, then Norwegian authorities, uh, in a way, kind of recognize that you have, you know, the right to become a Norwegian citizen according to the rules we've set out. So there's no reason why we would say no on those grounds. And we are asking everyone to just be Norwegian and nothing else. But asking you that is actually basically disinheriting you in another country mm -hmm. uh, with whole big implications for like families completely somewhere else in the world. So then there was kind of a lot of exceptions to the rule. <laughs> and so, for instance, people who had Russian citizenships were allowed to keep them. And there were a number of other countries where it was pretty much standard procedure that you could keep both. And so you ended up having a situation where about half the people who naturalized in Norway were allowed to keep their original citizenship. And at that point, the sort of very principled approach to only one citizenship became just a bit silly mm. because no one, I mean, everyone knew that both all these people who originally had two citizenships from birth were allowed to keep them. And then you had all these loopholes. 
So it felt just very unfair for the few, you know, the few poor people who then had to renounce their citizenships. So it was very sort of um, messy. And then there was a lot of principled discussion around it. And it's interesting that with the dual citizenship uh, legislation, that was nearly changed 20 years before. And it was kind of just touch and go. Uh, and the expert commission who did a report on it recommended opening for dual citizenship back then. Uh, but the parliament actually decided against it for a sort of symbolic, political type reasons. Uh, so it's it's a bit of a sort of curious story why Noe was quite slow with this and actually had dual citizenship only after Denmark, which you maybe wouldn't have expected given given the sort of general po- politics of citizenship and immigration in Scandinavia. But then finally they did open up for it uh, a couple of years ago. That's very interesting. And thank you for, for clarifying the full story because it's even more interesting than I realized. <laughs> and one other facet of this, which I think is very relevant to our conversation, is um, some politicians wanted dual citizenship for the reason of being able to deport criminals. Um, Maybe you want to comment quickly on that, because I think that's quite interesting that the argument is that you can't make someone stateless. So you could not strip some, for example, a terrorist, if there was a Norwegian terrorist who perhaps had previously had another citizenship, but then they only were a Norwegian citizen. You couldn't strip them of their Norwegian citizenship. But now they their argument is, well, we could just send them to their so-called home country. Yeah, I mean, this has been a huge discussion. And again, in Denmark, this was a, a very sort of interesting political compromise between political parties who, for very liberal reasons, wanted to have dual citizenship and political parties for kind of uh, these sorts of reasons wanted it as well. So that was kind of explicitly a part of the discourse in, in, in Denmark and, and to a lesser degree, I think, in Norway, but it was also present in, in the discussions. And this, of course, was at the same time as the war in Syria was going on. So there was a lot of focus also on, on foreign fighters uh, and on uh, people joining IS specifically from also the Scandinavian countries, but also, as we know, from the UK and from, from other countries. Uh, and so there was a sort of discussion about how do we deal with this uh, in general. And of course, then the, the debate was, you know, as citizens, we should be responsible for them. So they should come back here and face sort of a trial in a court of law under our our laws. Uh, and that should kind of have its due process. And then the counter argument in a way was that they're dangerous. And if we can, you know, avoid having them back on our territory, then let's do whatever we can to make that happen. Uh, and for instance, the UK did renounce uh, citizenships uh, of people who had dual citizenship. I think, you know, sadly, most of those people actually were not alive at that point. So I don't actually know what effect that had. Uh, but there was the huge uh, Shamima Begum case as well around this, where I think it's it's illustrative, not in terms of, you know, what she did or what she didn't, which I'm not going to go into, but in terms of the fact that, she, you know, her citizenship was nothing to do with any IS land at all. She had her parents' uh, nationality from Bangladesh, which she didn't have a very strong tie to at all. And I think that's quite similar to many of the cases we've seen uh, in, in Scandinavia as well, that these were you know, completely other countries that were neither Norway nor anything around the sort of IS territories that they were actually in, but just other places in the world. Uh, and it sort of becomes an interesting discussion of how can states then sort of send people who they deem to be a risk around the world based on, on papers that come from some kind of ancestral uh, lines. And I think it's interesting, you know, in terms of how we deal with terrorism. It's interesting in how we, you know, think about who are our citizens and who aren't. And that comes down to quite sort of foundational issues of, you know, who are we and who can we kind of expel? So if this is, is a person who doesn't have any other citizenship, as you say, you can't make them state this. Uh, but would that have been a question if they didn't have ancestral ties elsewhere? 
probably not, right? So I think it really comes down to very sort of foundational questions about how do we define citizenship, also linking it to the nation state beyond the formal aspects of belonging as well, which I know we'll come back to. Yeah, absolutely. I want to shift now to another type of status, um, refugee status. And um, I will add that two of the articles that we're kind of referencing and and talking about today um, are, for one, losing the right to stay, revocation of refugee permits in Norway. And the other one is birthplace unknown on the symbolic value of the passport for identity construction among naturalized citizens. So I will link to both of those because they're very interesting and, and go deeper into some of the things we're going to talk about. But to shift over to refugee status, because this is another um, sort of limbo that people might find themselves in. Um, it's some maybe perhaps a, a waypoint for people who are hoping to get citizenship at some point, which again is maybe not as permanent as you might imagine. But just briefly, what is refugee status and, and how does that actually work? Okay, so I think if we start with refugee status as we know it mainly in Europe, it's linked to the 1951 Refugee Convention and the 1967 Refugee Protocol. Uh, which defines, you know, who a refugee is in terms of someone who's who's fleeing a, a fear of persecution for a number of reasons, right? Uh, and then there's a procedure of how you get that status. Uh, it could be uh, via applying for asylum, and there's an assessment of that case. It could also be uh, that it's assessed actually before you you come, and then there's a whole process of you becoming a refugee status person, and then you're resettled to a third country. So that's kind of part of the formality here. But there's a couple of points that are in, important to mention, I think. One is that there are other definitions of refugee status around the world. Importantly, in the African Union, there's been one that's more expansive. There's the Cartagena Declaration from Latin America from the 80s, which was also a little bit more different and expansive. So it's not like kind of completely uniform and universal, right? So there are different types of statuses. And importantly, there are a lot of states that have not signed the UN 1951 Refugee Convention, however, who actually are states that host probably the majority of refugees around the world. So including countries like like Lebanon, for instance, or, or, or Pakistan, right? So I think uh, it's important in this conversation where we're focusing on Norway to also have a little bit more of a global approach. But then coming back to Norway and, and the refugee status uh, in the Norwegian context, like you said, uh, you apply for that and you then can get it. And then the idea often is that it's for good. And that actually historically hasn't always been the case. So the idea when this came about after the Second World War was that These were people in need of protection now. It was super urgent, right? And you needed to find a solution right now of where to move people. And that was also the case uh, in many instances later. But then the question of what then uh, is another question in a way. So we have to kind of bring them to safety now, but then what's going to happen to them? Uh, And for a very long time, the sort of norm also in the Norwegian context was that you stayed Hmm. and that getting asylum and, and refugee status whether that was based on the 51 Convention or actually on humanitarian grounds, which were slightly more expansive, for instance, if you came from a situation of war, but weren't personally, individually necessarily uh, at fear of a sort of persecution for these reasons, but you came from a war context and you, you received protection on humanitarian grounds. But then that sort of led to an assumption that this is a pathway to integration, which leads to naturalization and then citizenship as, as the ultimate goal. And for very many refugees, that is indeed the case. Uh, but it hasn't necessarily been that case always. Uh, and in the the rules that we have in Norway, that's also actually not been legally the case. So there's been kind of a sleeping, sleeping part of the law that hasn't been used, except uh, a couple of times. So in the 90s, when uh, the war in Bosnia happened, there was temporary protection uh, in Norway, but also in many other countries in Europe. And it was explicit that this is temporary. 
And of course, this is with the idea, which is rather nice, that we want wars and situations of persecution to end. There's an idea of hope, of kind of things becoming better, and of people wanting to return back to their places of origin eventually. And most people do, right? But then we know that there are a lot of protracted conflicts and there are situations where individuals can't go back. So this sort of idea that it can be temporary doesn't work for everyone. Uh, and we also know from research with refugees and migrants in general that um, being temporary somewhere is very, very hard in terms of investing in your life there because you don't know how long you're going to stay and you don't know where you're going next. So both in terms of your, your own human resources, language capacities, what you do with your kids, how you make social networks, all of those things, how you de deal with that is very different if you think I'm here for now, I don't know what happens next, or if you think this is it, I need to really make it work. And just the temporal frame of that, whether that's three years, five years or 10 years, makes a super big impact on how people actually deal with, with their situation. Uh, and, and this article that you referred to on um, losing the right of stay, which was co-authored with uh, Jan-Paul Brekke and Simon Roland Birkvad, Uh, we look specifically at what happens uh, in the case of revocation. And I think it's important here to sort of mention that this temporary protection issue is referred to usually as cessation, which means that the state is in a way saying from the, from the get-go, you're getting temporary protection, and when the situation back home uh, is okay, you, your protection is no longer needed, hence your right to stay here will stop. So it's kind of supposed to be an open-ended deal where everyone knows what's going on. So that's very different from the revocation, which is basically uh, in cases where the state finds that there's something not quite right about the process and the procedure. So essentially it's in, in cases where the state would suspect that probably you've provided wrong information or incomplete information or somehow tried to manipulate the system or, or somehow, you know, not played the rules the way the state wants you to. And in these cases, it's, it's kind of brutal because you already have that status and then it's sort of taken back afterwards. So it means that you've gone through an asylum process, which in the Norwegian context is often quite long. So you wait, you're uncertain, you wait, and then you finally get your status. And then you are moved into municipality and you start your life and the whole integration program and everything. And then at some point this, this could happen. And in some of the cases that we, we discussed in that article, it happened after, after a very long time, which comes back to what I was saying about the sort of temporariness and how what we found there is that once that sort of doubt about whether you have the right to stay comes in, even if that doesn't materialize in you actually being uh, at any point expelled or deported, that in itself really sort of destroys the integration process because it does something with your trust in where your future lies quite simply. Which I think at a human level is very understandable. But I think it's it was really striking how some of the bureaucratic measures taken to sort of say we're starting this process to look into this, that in itself was enough to disrupt the integration process quite seriously. This makes me think of also going away from just the legal point of view of being a refugee, but actually the yeah, the emotional point of view that you're referring to now, where I mean I have some friends or have met people who identify still as refugees, even as adults, maybe they were brought to a country by their parents as refugees when they were very young, they might not even remember coming and they still say, I, I am a refugee. Um, and then some people say I was a refugee. And, and of course there's, there's different um, reasons and perspectives on why someone might identify that way. And I mean, I was also at a talk with some um, women from Afghanistan a couple weeks ago that we co-hosted and they also referred to this. Some of them said, I am a refugee. I mean, they had just come to Norway as refugees. Others had come a while ago and they 
they still said, I'm a refugee from Afghanistan. So I'm wondering if before we get to this belonging more generally, if you can touch on, yeah, the sense of identity, what did people say about that when you, when you interviewed them or when, when you've spoken to them before? So I think this is an important question because I think it, it sort of touches on um, how, whether it's refugee status or indeed I think also citizenship, uh, there's a formal aspect of it and then there's kind of a more informal uh, and experienced part of it. And th those don't necessarily always align, I think. So I think, you know, there's a, a, a very famous citizenship studies scholar called Christian Jopke. And at one point he said um, basically that, you know, your, your, legal, your, your legal status is one thing, but identity can't be sort of uh, enforced by law. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think there's something important with that. So in a way, whatever status you have, that doesn't have to correspond neatly onto uh, your identity. And you could say in a way with the case of refugees that technically speaking, uh, the idea with the system that we have is that people should not have to be refugees forever because there should be pathways out of that status, right? So the UNHCR operates with these three dual resolutions where hopefully either you can return uh, or you can settle in the local area where you first um, arrived or there's the option of resettlement to third countries. Uh, and the, the option of sort of seeking asylum by yourself somewhere else because none of these solutions are actually happening is not really a preferred option uh, for good reasons, but that is actually what a lot of people are opting for because these other solutions aren't materializing, right? But I think then sort of having this sort of ideal type of idea that, you know, you should be allowed to stop being a refugee at some point because it's not really an ideal setting to be in for life because it's so insecure and, and difficult. That doesn't mean that people don't feel like they are refugees in the sense that they've left their place of origin. And for many of them, they feel like they might never be able to go back, maybe because that place has changed so much as well, right? Uh, or in the case of Afghanistan, with kind of repeated different types of ruptures where it means that probably many Afghans uh, around the world today feel more like refugees again, hmm. regardless of what they might have felt like at different points in the past 20 years. So I think it's also something about identity shifting over time, not just in your own life, but with the context in the place of origin. Uh, and I think that's... Uh, more sort of existential identity type issue really than the formal part really mm. so i want to talk about birthplace unknown because again this was the specific article that you um, co-authored with on finn mitburn and and i think again belonging is such a big theme in both of these articles but here especially um i find it very very interesting can you explain um wh what this article is about and just yeah what you what you guys found because i found it extremely fascinating so the article was um, it was part of a research project that we had on governing and experiencing citizenship. Uh, and what oddly happened in the middle of that research project was that there was a sort of administrative procedure that was changed in Norway, whereby on the identity page of naturalized citizens in Norway, uh, or anyway, any citizens really, but basically on the identity page you have the place of birth, your city of birth basically in most passports. Uh, and basically there they changed the rules for how you verify identity information from different countries around the world. Uh, and in practice, most countries in Africa and Asia, uh, it was deemed that the quality of identity papers, especially back to 60s, 70s, maybe even 50s, 80s, so pre-digital times, um, that the quality of that information was just not verifiable according to sort of the standards that the Norwegian authorities want to use for identity papers. So, you know, a sort of... Critical reading of that would be that this is, you know, a very alienating and sort of deliberately evil thing to do. 
Uh, and I think it's easy to understand that that's the reaction many people had. I do think, though, it's important to underscore that it is a good thing that states try to you know, live up to the best standards possible in terms of verifying identity information for people and to try and think, you know, we should be improving the systems we're using and operating and now we have better technology, we should, you know, try and do that in the best possible way. So I, I wouldn't buy into a sort of super critical reading of it, but I would buy into a critical reading of the implications, which they totally had not thought of. And that is very surprising. So basically what happened was that just before the summer holidays, pretty much, and this was, you know, pre-pandemic, people were planning to travel abroad um, and many people were renewing their passports and they would be getting uh, their renewed Norwegian passport then with birthplace unknown uh, printed on the identity page of the passport instead of, you know, birthplace and a specific city name or, you know, place name in their country of origin. And many people were in practice worried about, you know, what the impact of that on a practical level. So like, would they get visas? Would they be able to enter? Because this is not a very usual thing in, in passports. Mm. It's a sort of obligatory field that should be there, right? So what? how do you even deal with that? Mm. So there was a lot of practical concern around it as well. But then we also decided in this project that, okay, this happened. Uh, let's see what we can do with that in terms of the research we're doing. We're planning to do interviews with people of different citizenship statuses anyway. So then we thought, okay... As soon as we bring up the topic of passports and citizenship with people in Norway at this point, they will bring, be bringing up this topic anyway. Let's just sort of do that up front. So we had a sort of collage of different images of news stories around this uh, and also sort of an example of, of, a, of a passport page with this happening and asked people to reflect on it in, in interviews. And like you say, there was a lot of very interesting reactions and thoughts around that uh, where perhaps not surprisingly, uh, some people did feel that this was quite intrusive and much more than a sort of bureaucratic hurdle. So for some people, it was a sort of um, sense of, okay, so I'm a Norwegian citizen, but yet again, there's something. So I'm not quite as equal as the other equal Norwegian citizens. And mm. what's that? Mm. Um, there were some people who were adopted who felt that, you know, this is just so wrong. How can they possibly have done this and not thought about the fact that there are a lot of people in Norway who have been adopted and obviously are born abroad? but obviously also have no other citizenship and are, you know, in every sense, Norwegians. Um, then there was some who also reflected very much on this at the sort of existential level. Uh, and they were sort of basically saying that I naturalized to become a Norwegian citizen as a whole person. Uh, and I did that being born somewhere else. But I also kind of opted to be part of the Norwegian society and to sort of opt into being Norwegian. Uh, and now they're basically, you know, putting a line across where I was born and that's such an important part of who I am mm. so what does that mean do they not want the whole of me mm. so for some people this you know in a way very technical bureaucratic thing became very sort of symbolic of you know which part of me is then accepted as a Norwegian citizenship and is there a B status Norwegian citizenship then for people yeah. who are born abroad how does that actually work and of course that intersects with with the ongoing debates about discrimination uh, and about sort of perceptions of Norwegianness more in general. So I think I'm pretty sure that was not uh, on the radar of these bureaucrats who work with, you know, identity securing and sort of digital technologies. Uh, but it should have been, because in a diverse society, that really is exactly the sort of thing they should have been able to foresee and to manage the process to both secure good systems uh, and not kind of have this, this whole uh, upsetting incident um, emerging. 
I'm in the process of applying for citizenship now in Norway, and I was born in Morocco. So when I read your article, I actually immediately flipped to the the page where you had listed all the countries because I was really curious if I would also have this. And Morocco actually is one of the countries that it it, it will list my birthplace. But when I was thinking about it, I I actually thought, yeah, that would be very very alienating. And I think it also says something about the trust in other people because. Yes, it is, of course, hard to verify things that were, as you said, pre kind of pre-digital age, but it also is something about at some point you have to trust what someone says. You have to trust that they, they know their birth date. You have to trust that they know their birthplace. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really went down a bit of an existential rabbit hole myself thinking about this, and, um, and I really recommend people read the article because, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting and, and very important topic. Just wrapping up, I want to ask you, do you think that Norway is, is I don't want to say worse, because that's kind of a very judgmental way of putting it, but stricter or or just different from other countries when it comes to all of these things we talked about, uh, revocation of status, um, revocation of citizenship, um, maybe not recognizing the diversity of people's lives, or, or do you think that Norway is kind of generally on par with other Western countries? It's a big question. Yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I... Well, I think a lot of European societies really struggle with these things. Uh, and I do think that there's sort of an element of, you know, having a, a welfare state in Norway uh, and a system which is quite bureaucratic, but it's also a fairly lean bureaucracy. It's very efficient. It's a small country with a relatively small population. Uh, the Norwegian state actually knows who people in Norway are. Now, that's that has a that has kind of a a scary side to it because it's a bit of a sort of big brother image there. But on the other hand, it's actually also a safety net, right? Uh, and so I think it's, you have to kind of, in considering that question, also sort of look at it from both of those sides, that it kind of has both a dark and a light side to it somehow. Uh, but I think in terms of, of um, the aspect of uh, immigration control and using citizenship as effectively a sort of last post of immigration control, that is a trend that we're seeing in many European countries uh, certainly in uh, across sort of the Nordics as well, where we have the sort of classic Denmark being more strict, Sweden being less, and now Sweden is trying to be more strict, and, and Norway is somewhere in between and, between and trying to sort of copy Denmark. Uh, but we're also seeing that, you know, the UK is doing quite a lot of, of stuff that I would say is pretty dark in this area with, with their hostile environments policies, which is essentially the same sort of thing of trying to regulate by different means and finding new ways of regulating, where I think... Digital technologies are an important part of that. Uh, sort of how you use the state apparatus, where you kind of link in other welfare state arms into the border control uh, in practice, which basically means that you're making it impossible for people to be irregular. Now, is that a good or a bad thing? Depends very much on your perspective, right? But I think from the state's perspective, it's pretty legitimate to say that we prefer to know who's here. But then, of course, the state has to provide some means for people to become legal or, you know, amnesties or, or or sort of roots out of illegality somehow. So I think there are some dilemmas there, but I wouldn't necessarily, you know, be anarchistic enough to sort of say that I think states don't have a right to try to do that. And then a final thing on the diversity point, I think uh, Norway still struggles with the self-identity of being a relatively new country of immigration, which is totally not true anymore. Mm. Uh, and I think we've, you know, we've seen that with the pandemic as well, that the systems for communicating in different languages to different communities of minorities in Norway, where we know there are elderly people, especially in, among minorities, who do not read uh, and, and sort of understand spoken Norwegian that well necessarily. Um, the government has been doing a huge effort on this. And it's, you know, it's been doing a lot, but it's been running after the problem. 
because they did not have a preparedness for crisis, which is rigged for a diverse society. And I think that's an acknowledgement that they've now, you know, they've learned that the hard way. Uh, but I'm curious to see, you know, now Norway's opening up, as you said. So we're now just going to think, fine, let's move on. And this goes for health, for welfare, for education, for many aspects of society where we're not rigged to deal with the diversity that we have in the Norwegian society, and especially not in terms of, of crisis preparedness. So I'm sort of hoping that might be one thing that comes out of the pandemic, which means that public policy in general is more rigged for the society that actually is supposed to, to serve and, and be there for in a way. Thank you so much, Marta. This has been a great conversation. I will link to your articles in the description, and um, I'm hoping we can pick up some of these topics in the future, including uh, the one that you just brought up, the pandemic, and, and how that was uh, experienced by a very diverse society here. Thank you. Thanks, Inigo. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Check the show notes from today for links to the articles Marta and I discussed. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trickhauger. Additional editing by Fuka Iwase. Music by Martin Dunnemull.